This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Broadcast Podcast. We are bringing you episode 219 and we are giving you the first session in Dave Devonish's new series, Cross-Centred Leadership, that is looking at uh, leadership within 1 and 2 Corinthians. And this is the introduction to the course, which will be available on the 30th of September. The purpose of this series of teaching is to look at leadership as modelled by the Apostle Paul and by Jesus himself but I'm going to focus on leadership as modelled in 1 and 2 Corinthians because I want to bring out the truth of what I call cross-centred servant leadership. I believe that's a huge challenge for the church in the West, but also as the, the influence of teaching from the West goes into other parts of the world, in Africa and India and so on, that leadership is seen as something very, very different from what was modelled in the New Testament. I think it's one of the biggest challenges facing today's church. Um, We've seen many leaders fall into sin and have to come out of leadership. And also there's been celebrity culture that's affected the church as we're uh, taking its model from the celebrity culture in the world. And so I really feel we need to address that because we must get back to demonstrating a very different style of leadership and attitude of leadership. So I'm going to take this from uh, Paul's writing in 1 and 2 Corinthians. We're going to do a survey of of leadership as reflected in those two letters. And I'm going to start off by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The context I originally taught this material was in terms of a gathering of apostolic leaders from around the world. And therefore, at that time, I was particularly majoring on apostolic leadership as demonstrating the cross. And that comes out in the chapter I'm going to read, but is actually, as we'll go on to see, the model for all Christian leadership. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which is not the favourite text when people are speaking on apostolic ministry today. They tend to use other scriptures, quite rightly, because they make it clear. But um, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul says this, So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ, who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries, Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager, or in the older translations as a steward, must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It's the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. 
when God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Dear brothers and sisters, I've used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? You think you already have you everything you need. You think you are already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so powerful. You are honoured, but we are ridiculed. Even now we go hungry and thirsty, and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to own our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So I urge you to imitate me. That's why I've sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. Some of you have become arrogant, thinking I'll not visit you again, but I will come, and soon, if the Lord lets me, and then I'll find out whether these arrogant people just give pretentious speeches, or whether they really have God's power. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. What do you which do you choose? Should I come with a rod to punish you, or should I come with love and a gentle spirit? As I say, that's the, not the scripture often used for apostolic ministry, except for the last part on spiritual fathering. But the rest of the chapter is very important on the nature of Christian leadership and spiritual authority in the church generally, which is so contrasted with many claims today. I remember doing a uh, workshops in East Africa for a number of uh, leaders who led whole networks of churches and uh, I was teaching on apostolic foundations which is something you can listen to on the broadcast there's a whole series on that and uh, they were joking with me in the question and answer session. And the 
prosperity gospel so-called had particularly impacted them all recently because there'd been these uh, big gatherings based on uh, faith and prosperity and they said to me you can't be an apostle today I said what do you mean he said well you aren't staying in a much better hotel than the rest of us. You're just staying with us. You're not wearing very expensive clothes. You don't drive a big car. You aren't driven in by a chauffeur to these meetings and then just come in and do your preaching and leave. You're just having meals with us. I mean, they were being ironic, obviously, because they appreciated that... Uh, that was pretty deceptive, that idea of uh, massive uh, leaders who are celebrities in their culture. And this really reminded me of this particular scripture. But I, although that's something that impacted me, I want to describe my journey that led to my teaching on this subject. In 2017, it was the 500th anniversary, as many of you remember, of Martin Luther and him uh, putting his statements up on the uh, church door. And I went to a conference to celebrate that. And Friend of good friend of mine, Joel Virgo, was one of the speakers, and he spoke on Luther's theology of the cross. And he read from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, uh, part of which says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And what he was bringing out about Martin Luther's teaching is that Martin Luther contrasted the theology of the cross with what he called the theology of glory. That's a strange contrast because we think of God as being glorious and the glory of God is a wonderful theme in scripture. But what he meant was a theology based on our thinking influenced by medieval notions of power wonderful buildings rulers who dominated particularly in the at that time not today so much but in that time in the roman catholic and orthodox churches where leadership displayed the theology of glory with wonderful robes and very rich ornate buildings and wealth being held by the church. And leadership was part of that. And Martin Luther called that a theology of glory. And part of his teaching in the Reformation was rather leadership should demonstrate, as Paul does here, theology of the cross rather than theology of glory. Glory will be there in the future. And glory is to be given to God, but to him alone. And so, Joel said this, Far from being incidental to God's purpose, 
or God making the best of a bad situation, it was central to God's deter predetermined plan. It was masterminded. So in Christ, his life, death and resurrection, the cross being shorthand for this in Paul and in Luther, we see God, the real God. We see God in the cross. And that is what God had always been doing in the Old Testament, humbling himself to dwell amongst his people, working through weakness. That's consistent in the Old Testament, but it was particularly demonstrated in Christ. And this leads to the truth that I want to focus on in these sessions, that the truth of the suffering Jesus is the model for Christian leadership and ministry. And I began to meditate upon this. It was before the cross, before the events of the cross in John 13, that Jesus gave his powerful example of Christian leadership in the foot washing story, with an opening to that chapter of authority, he knew who he was, security in who he was, and determination to demonstrate true love to his disciples. It is how Jesus contrasts with all earthly models of leadership in Matthew. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the nations that is, lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Matthew 20, 25. And he's saying, it's not to be like that with you. You know, Christian leadership, as I travel around the world, often draws more from its culture, the culture of the country, than from the Bible. And Another factor was a discussion, because as I said, I presented this material first at one of our Conference of Apostolic Leaders within our fellowship on how actually spiritual authority works as we serve and plant churches. And that came up during a presentation I'd done when Paul urged Timothy to use the authority he had and... Uh, for those of us who believe in the autonomy of the local church, but apostolic ministry serving that, how do you get servant leadership and authority together? That should also be modelled in local leadership because there is spiritual authority in leadership, but it is the authority of servant leadership. And the principles that I'm going to talk about in these four talks from 1 and 2 Corinthians really draw that out. Somehow, Paul managed to combine genuine spiritual authority with genuine cross-centred servant leadership. So both the priority of the cross and how spiritual authority is exercised are both most clearly set out in Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. In this introductory session, I'm going to give an introduction to the two letters to the Corinthians. And 
This applies equally, as I said, to how spiritual authority works out within a local church and it's particularly relevant today because of the way, as I said in my introduction, leaders have had to step down because of abuse or misuse of authority. And not only in the West, but in other parts of the world. Then, as I was meditating upon this subject, I read Fleming Rutledge's brilliant book called The Crucifixion. And again, as I studied that book through two or three months, was just overwhelmed again with the power of the cross. Again, she draws much from 1 Corinthians as the model, both for what we preach, we preach the message of the cross, but also our attitude to leadership and service. I'm also very, very conscious because I'm uh, part of a uh, family of churches working in many nations, and I... Uh, one of the things that has happened to us, we've started in the West mainly and in a few other parts of the world, but increasingly, we don't just read about the suffering church, but in our fellowship, we have many, many churches who are in uh, countries where there is persecution and we're working into those situations. And... For example, I've learned much from being involved in China and learning from our friends there and realize that we must be equipped for this in the future rather than the modern equivalence, which is in so much modern equivalence of the theology of glory, which is in so much leadership material today. You know, whether it's books on leadership effectiveness, how to build a big church, or God wants you to be wealthy, as I refer to as our African brothers and sisters spoke about. And that's what we might call an over-realized eschatology. Like in Corinth, he said, you reign like kings. Whereas when you're suffering persecution... Leadership involves flexibility, quick decision-making, and few long-term plans, because you don't know what's going to happen. You, know, you can't say, this is my five-year plan, when you don't know whether you'll be in prison next week. And so, and it's very interesting, one of my friends in a country that's suffering from war said to me, he said he found that people who were good leaders in peacetime were not often not the good leaders in wartime. And that made me reflect as well. So recently, um, before making this presentation originally, I just lived for several months in Paul's letters to Corinth as exemplifying the following issues. Firstly, cross-centered preaching and leadership, which I've said many times already, we tend to separate these two. We believe in preaching the cross in the gospel, but we don't often let it affect our style of church life. Secondly, as I 
reflected through the letter to Corinth, the power and effectiveness of servant leadership and how we live that out, modelled on Jesus and Paul. So, we often quote Paul's comment, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. But we don't always see the context of that verse. If I read the section, it says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The context of that often quoted scripture is that of humble leadership that doesn't seek its own advantage. Also, it's a wonderful example, 1 and 2 Corinthians, of how spiritual authority towards churches by those serving them works in practice. And also, because we are to, uh, we're all to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ, and that's a model for every leader, local leadership as well as translocal, those, who are, those that are serving churches. It's, um, it means that our, it teaches us how that spiritual authority works out in practice, because much of Paul's writing in those two letters is to establish his authority to the Corinthians. In fact, it's the main issue of 2 Corinthians, which I enjoyed studying because I'd studied 1 Corinthians much more in the past. But 2 Corinthians is all about this relationship to Paul. And so he is seeking to win them back because of the so-called super apostles I referred to earlier, how they had come in and infiltrated the church and Paul is seeking to win them back and win back his spiritual authority, actually. And as he does that, it's amazing. He brings in wonderful truth on the back of his um, explaining his relationship with the Corinthians. So, for example, early on in the book, he's trying to apologise and explain why he hadn't visited them when he said he would. And yet, into that context, he just brings that amazing truth that we often quote, that every promise is yes in Christ. I often use that scripture when I'm talking about God's overall plan to, uh, that he promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, and now worked out for those of us who are in Christ. And I often quote that scripture, every promise, every promise of God to his people is yes in Jesus Christ. Paul brings that wonderful truth in as an explanation of... Uh, when he's trying to explain why he couldn't come when he said he would. Linked with this is the issue of genuine relational leadership and spiritual fathering. fathering. It's important and, and its limitations, actually. Also, 1 and 2 Corinthians teach us how Paul avoided culture obscuring the gospel. 
The gospel needs to be presented in a way that's understood in the culture, and Paul was a genius at that, as we see in his teach in his preaching in Athens. But he somehow, in one Corinthians, manages to, and one and two Corinthians, flexibly serve every different cultural group, as he explains in one Corinthians chapter nine, but avoids that culture obscuring the gospel and the way that Christian life is worked out. And then Paul's at uh, concern that communities of God's people are established, which are not, which are truly cross-founded and spirit-filled and empowered. And that was important to Paul. Both were evidence of the new covenant. New covenant secured in the cross, but the new covenant, the abundance of the Holy Spirit. So there's power. It's not that we're, co- we're contrasting the cross with genuine spiritual power, ra- because we don't want to uh, substitute what I referred to as over-realized eschatology with under-realized eschatology. That's often a danger. Paul renounced worldly clever oratory in favor of Christ crucified, but stressed as well the power of the cross applied by the spirit so that faith doesn't stand on man's wisdom but on God's power and he says about those who are opposing him in Corinth in the scripture we read yes when I come to you I'm going to see whether they've just words or whether they've really got power this power in the spirit this power in the cross and so Paul's relationship with the Corinthians and George Guthrie, in his brilliant commentary on 2 Corinthians, which I really commend to you, says this. If Romans gives us the most systematic presentation of Paul's theology, it is nevertheless from the Corinthian epistles that we gain the most complete and many-sided picture of how Paul believed that his theological convictions should be expressed in the life of a church. Consequently, we need to hear 2 Corinthians, know it, and take it very seriously as we reflect on how Christian ministry is to be done in the world. It seeks to draw a wandering congregation close, close to their apostle and his mission, and thus close to the true gospel and the true Christ. That's 2 Corinthians. Very important. And there's... A constant combination in Paul's teaching with the message of the gospel and the outworking of the gospel in how Christian leadership is demonstrated and how communities of the spirit uh, work out their lives. So what's the history then of Paul's relationship with Corinth? Well, Acts 18 talks about how he preached there at first there wasn't much result and he seemed to get a bit depressed even um, and then he had a vision where God speaks to him and says I've got many people in this city also at first he was a bit limited by tent making because it didn't give him as much time and there were other factors involved in that which we'll come on to in later sessions uh, but then could give more time to preaching and church planting when a team arrived with funds from the churches in Macedonia. Um, 
Paul writes four letters and talks about two visits to Corinth. So there's the previous letter referred to in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, which we don't have, but obviously he'd written then. He then writes 1 Corinthians. Then he made the sorrowful visit, 2 Corinthians 2. One person in particular was opposing Paul, probably influenced by the view that Paul was not a great orator and had to be disciplined by Paul. Paul then writes what he calls the sorrowful letter. Again, we don't have that. We've got what we need, but there's bits we don't have, which the Corinthians felt was somewhat harsh. Paul then leaves Ephesus after a time of suffering and a riot, then heard from Titus that the Corinthians have been made sorrowful, but shown some signs of repentance. He then writes 2 Corinthians where he pleads for the person disciplined to be restored in great generosity of heart. He himself was demonstrating the grace of God in leadership. And then Paul visits Corinth again as promised in 2 Corinthians. He promised he would come again and he does. And from there he wrote the letter to the Romans. So that's just the history. Then I want to speak on Corinth culture, leadership and Paul, just in this, this is in this introductory session. The Corinthian church, though being mainly people of low status, he says not many of you were high-born, not many of you were rich and so on, included quite a number of rich and high-born people. He said not many, some of you were. So there were wealthy people in Corinth and that Often that wasn't the case in the Christian churches. Spread amongst the poor, first of all. But in Corinth, you had some wealthy people like Erastus, the city treasurer. Very important person, referred to in Romans chapter 16. Um, And now, obviously, that was a conflict in Corinth when they came to the Lord's Supper, because the wealthy were able to enjoy a relaxed meal before the poor arrived. Also, Corinth, as well as being full of immorality and idolatry, was also a place where sophisticated rhetoric was highly valued. That's the culture of Corinth. Corinth held the Isthmian Games, which is a sporting occasion equal to the Olympic Games. But also, including that, as well as all the athletic events, there were competitions of rhetoric. Who could speak the best? I'm not sure whether that would be added to the Olympic Games today, but that's what the Isthmian Games had that, because that was so highly valued in Corinth. Who was the best public speaker? And you can see that culture behind the letter to 2 Corinthians. By this time, a particular type of orator called the sophists were active and admired in Corinth. Therefore, Paul's preaching of the cross could easily be looked down upon even by some of those who had been saved through this message And Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we are 
But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Power again. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The sophists, in other words. Those people in... It's dealing directly with Corinthian culture. And discard the intelligence of the intelligent. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In this, Paul attacks the very essence of this aspect of Corinthian culture. We have to be careful today, even in fitting in with our comfortable style of church buildings, etc., to not going further and failing to deal with the ungodly aspects of culture it can represent. Even the term leader, as I said earlier, can be drawn from the culture rather than the Bible. In fact, although you get leadership in the Bible, the word is is not often used. It's more your function, your pastor, your apostolic, your prophetic, your elders in the local church, the deacons who serve. By the time he writes to Corinthians, and by the time he writes his earlier painful letter, which we don't have, it seems that Paul's lack of conformity to Corinthian culture was magnified by some visiting teachers to Corinth, the super-apostles or false prophets, who despised Paul as lacking gifts of oratory. So he, he, he wasn't the right guy to send to Corinth. He couldn't... Uh, Corinthians demanded great oratory. And not looking like their view of a leader. I've sometimes heard that said in churches today. Oh, I don't, he doesn't seem much of a leader. They were Jewish and proud of that and brought some sort of letter of commendation, a frequent practice in that world, but were not primarily trying to bring the Corinthians back to legalism like the visitors in Galatia. Paul does not deal with that in 2 Corinthians. Rather, they were attempting to subvert Christ-like standard of leadership, which would ultimately undermine the power of the cross and thus Paul can say, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. 2 Corinthians 11.4 Conformity to worldly standards of leadership, and not just legalism, ultimately undermine the gospel. Listen to that. We've, in, in, in the churches I represent, we've been fighting legalism for decades. Grace is the foundation, not legalism. But actually, conformity to worldly standards of leadership also undermines the gospel. Because it puts success in the wrong place. It undermines the servant nature of Jesus and the power of the cross. Corinth was also steeped in the Greek and Roman massive stronghold of patronage. Now, patronage, you have to understand patronage when you read the New Testament, because a lot of the, even the word grace, charis, comes from the, what, the patronage system, and Paul redeems the word. Not time to go into that now. But the 
patronage was, in many respects, had many good features to it, actually. And the gospel makes use of those. But it was also a stronghold in keeping people obliged to others in a way that was unhelpful. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 9 and all of 2 Corinthians, you could think Paul's main point was to justify why he worked for a living rather than receive patronage from wealthy Corinthians. Remember, there were wealthy people in the church in Corinth. And if, they, if Paul was paid by them, because that's effectively what it would be, they would have some, he would have an obligation to them to serve the wealthy in the church and to promote the wealthy in the church. Big challenge. It seems, if you read, you know, all of that time on why you made tents, it seems an exaggerated response to a simple issue. But it was massive for planting a church in that cultural context. As I say, patronage culture was used in the New Testament and also undermined. Grace is radically adjusted. If you want to read more about this, there's a whole, there's, there's lots of writings on it, but one is absolutely brilliant called Misreading Scripture with Individualistic Eyes by Richards and James. Brilliant book. And also Conflict and Community in Corinth by Ben Witherington III. And they both deal with those things. Corinth was also socially divided between the wealthy and honourable. Remember, Mediterranean culture of that time, like Eastern culture today, was shame, honour, rather than law, guilt. Not time to go into all of that, but I'm sure you've heard it. So the, there was the wealthy and honourable, and then the rest of the city, manual workers, slaves, foreigners, etc., which mean, meant that these class distinctions and tendency to divide between favourites could easily come into the church. All that background is very important to understand 1 and 2 Corinthians. It is hard to build church where there's no background of the gospel affecting culture because it takes a long time to renew the mind or, in the words of 2 Corinthians, demolish stronger holds of wrong thinking, taking every thought captive. Because they thought in a particular way. They admired oratory. What's wrong with admiring oratory? What's wrong with admiring super leadership that seems so effective? It is today, however, even harder, I would suggest, when churches in cultures where Christianity has been historically strong, where, but where they have in practice adopted the prevailing ungodly cultural models of leadership, with a celebrity culture, as is often the case in the West, and now exported around the world. Hence the importance of and another book I'll quote, uh, refer to rather, called Global Humility by Andy McCulloch. And I believe that's a prophetic description of our calling together to display a different style of leadership that reflects the cross and servanthood. We want to be, in the family of churches I represent, word, strongly word 
and spirit, strongly family and mission, but also strongly displaying servant leadership and cross-based, spirit-empowered churches. I hope that's a helpful introduction.